Hi, everybody. My name's Johnny, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm very glad to be here tonight. Sober. I'm extremely pleased to be here fully clothed and in my right mind. <laughs> now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Now, a long time ago, I quit saying it to make any sense to anybody. You see, the longer I stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more necessary it becomes for me to remember from whence I came. And I don't ever want to forget that just a little over 21 years ago, I was crawling around on my knees in a cell in solitary confinement in the maximum security penitentiary. And because of a loving God has expressed himself through a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, it's no longer necessary for me to crawl around on my hands and knees like an animal. And if I didn't get anything out of this thing at all, nothing, I could live with that for a long time. It just kind of warms me to make me think about that. Because there ain't any way in God's world, any way in God's world, that I could get from where I was 21 years ago to where I am tonight. And there ain't no buses running from there to here. But you, if you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous or you're involved in any type of spiritual movement that involves God in your life, will understand that the transportation that brought me from where I was 21 years ago to where I am tonight isn't conceived in the eyes or the mind of man. Transportation is originated and remains and probably always remain in the hearts of man. What you see before you right now, <clears throat> standing here before you right now, is the byproduct of the program Alcoholics Not. That's all I am. Good, bad, or indifferent, I am what you've taught me to be. Now, what I'd like to do tonight, if I may, I'd like to tell you how I got to where I was 21 years ago. I worked at it. <laughs> you don't just show up there someday and say, let me in, coach. You know, this is, this is my deal. I'm looking for this thing. You know, no, what I was doing, crawling around on my hands and knees in that cell, uh, scratching at the concrete and bargaining at the moon, was the thing I'd been doing from my earliest recollection in life. I was looking for something. And to make matters even worse, I didn't know what it was I was looking for. But whatever it was, I didn't have it. Now, that's something I've always known. I've known that ever since I can remember. I knew there's something wrong with me. Now, I didn't know what it was, but I wasn't, it was something wrong. I, I wasn't like them. You know who them are, don't you? <laughs> them are the reason we're in here. That's what. <laughs> but I, I just wasn't quite like them. I, I was uh, different. I uh, didn't think like they thought. I didn't feel the way they felt. They didn't like the things that I liked. And I hated them for it. And I didn't understand it. And I kept looking around and trying to figure out why I felt this way and who was responsible for it. And I had a built-in excuse. I had a drunken mother, a drunken father, four drunken uncles, three drunken aunts, and a drunken grandfather. <laughs> and I said, well, no wonder I feel different. I've been born beneath my station. <laughs> These are the bad people. I don't belong around them. So maybe I belong around the good people. 
because there's only good ones and there's only bad ones. Now, if you feel different and ill at ease and apart from and not like and you hate all these bad people, you must belong to the good ones. So if you could just go over there and sit out around the good ones, you'd be okay. And so I looked up one day and my eyes fell upon my grandmother. And my grandmother was a kindly old lady. She lived till she was 90 years old and she never took a drink or smoked a cigarette in her life. She prayed a great deal. She went to church all the time. That's where Grandma went. And I figured wherever Grandma went, I was going to go. Because I just knew that if I could just go in there and sit down, I'd be okay. I just, it would leave me. I wouldn't be different. I wouldn't be strange. I wouldn't be apart from. I, I wouldn't hate everybody. I would be able to be, it would be okay if I could just go sit down with the good people. That's where I belong, where the good people. I'd find out where I belong. And so Sunday, I went with my grandmother to church. And I wandered in and I sit down around the good people and I felt different, strange, ill at ease. I wasn't like them and I hated everybody in the room. Then I said to myself, I wonder what's the matter with me. I don't belong around the bad people. I don't belong around the good people. I wonder where I do belong. And then I sit there in that church and I did something that I did my entire lifetime up into and including coming into Alcoholics Anonymous for a long, long time. I sit there in that church, completely out of sorts of the world, confused and lost and frightened to death, full of hatred and bitterness, and I sit there and waited for one of those quote and unquote superior beings to tell me what was the matter with me. I sit there with that man in those long flowing robes mounted that rostrum, and I waited for him to tell me what in God's world was wrong with me. I wanted him to tell me why I had that hole in my gut, why I was different, where I belonged. And more important, I want him to tell me what to do about it. And you know what he said? He said, you're supposed to love and honor and respect your parents. He said, you're supposed to love your brothers. And I didn't. I hated them. I hated them for reasons I didn't even understand, and God, I felt guilty about that. And I became frightened to death sitting in that church that people were going to find out I was hating when I was supposed to be loving, and I didn't know what to do about that. I don't belong around the bad people. I don't belong around the good people. I finally come and sit down around one of those people who's supposed to know everything. He tells me I'm supposed to feel one way when I feel another way. I don't know what's the matter with me. I turned to walk outside the door of the church that day. My old man standing there drunk and hung over. He reached over and tapped me on the head and said, Son, if you continue to go to church, you're going to grow up to be just like me. <laughs> There's a lot of things in life I wanted to be, but the old man wasn't one of them. Yeah, because I hated it. See, I lived in a house where there were two drunks working. And if you haven't lived in that type of a nightmare, I'll explain it to you. See, in the middle of the night in a house like that, they're screaming and yelling and cussing and flesh hitting flesh and breaking furniture and deathly silence. And every once in a while, the old man comes rubbing me out of bed and starts kicking me around. Now, he never did it to my brothers. He just did it to me. I used to lay there in the middle of the night and think about those things. It's a wonder about that. I wonder what put my uncles in those penitentiaries. I wonder what put my aunts in those houses on the other side of the tracks. And I wonder what made my mother beat up my old man. I wonder what made my old man beat up my mother. I wonder what made them both beat me up. You know, I just didn't understand that. And so one night, I don't know where it was, I was laying there and it came out of the clear blue sky. Alcohol. That's what causes it. Alcohol, I'm not going to drink. Because I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to be better than they are. I'm going to step out in that world and I'm going to find something and have something and be something and do something. What do you do if you're weird? 
What do you do if you've been everywhere there is to go, you've asked all the questions there is to ask, there's no answers, and you don't belong? I'll tell you what I did. I took a drink. No big decision on my part, I just took one. And it was the most fantastic thing that ever happened to me in my life. They went down in there and just kind of tore the madness out of me. That's what alcohol did for me. It took me from the black pit of nothingness, stood me onto the gray fringes of the business of living, and installed in me a sense of arrogance that says, damn you world, it's all right. Maybe I'm not good enough to be around the good people, and maybe I'm too good to be around the bad people, but it's okay right here. That's what alcohol did for me. Now, I'm going to tell you a strange secret. If alcohol still did that, I'd still drink it. That's as simple as I know how to put it. The reason I don't drink alcohol anymore or put any other type of chemicals in my system is because they don't work. And I had nothing to do with that. It just ran me right out of it. Now, I'd like to tell you that during the next 20 years of my life, I discovered some wonderful way to drink alcohol. I never did. I'm a bad drinker. Well, I'm a hog. Hogs don't drink well. I'm one of them type of people who think what one would do, what would 35 do for you? That's the way I think. Now, I don't know why that is, but I think that way. Now, everybody doesn't think that way. My sponsor doesn't think that way, because he's weird anyhow. He come running in the meeting where I was at one night. He said, I got a headache. And I said, oh, and he said, could you get me an aspirin? So I ran around, I found two excedrins, and I ran over to him and yelled out his hand. I put the two excedrins in his hand. He says, I only want one. I said, take two. You won't have a headache tomorrow. <laughs> he didn't think that was funny, but I did. Yeah. But that's the way I think. Now, what happened to me when I took a drink of alcohol is what the Chinese wrote about thousands of years ago. I took a drink, then the drink took a drink, and then the drink took me. And that's the story of my life. Because I took a drink of alcohol, and three days later, I was pulled out from underneath a bridge, stood in front of a judge, and sent to the Hutchinson State Reform School. I was in that school a little while. My mother came and took me out of that school and took me to California. On the way to California, my mother said to me and my brothers, kids, when we get to California, things are going to be different. Now, I don't know what my brothers thought. I know what I thought. Man, we're going to get out there and things are going to be okay now. It's going to be different out there. We're going to get a little house with a picket fence. My mother's going to get a little crispy apron with a tray full of cookies and milk. I'm going to be able to bring my friends in the house, and it's going to be okay. See, there's that alcoholic delusion again that over there, it's going to be better. If I could just put it together over there, it'd be fine. If I could, if I could get that, if I could get it out there. It took me a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous to realize that the problem ain't out there. The problem was in there. If it hadn't been there, I'd have never had to put nothing in there. I could have just rubbed my hand with it and been all right. We left a one-room shack in Kansas and came to California and got us a one-room shack with a bathroom. My mother got me a couple of new uncles and introduced them to me. <laughs> and I went out in the street corner and got drunk. And I made a fantastic discovery. I found out that alcohol would do the same thing to me in California that it did in Kansas. And in my way of thinking, it was the only thing that I'd ever found that ever did the same thing twice this second. See, I was tired of people telling me things they weren't going to do. I was tired of getting my hopes and dreams and aspirations that high off the ground and have somebody come along and kick the stool out from underneath me. But I found out if I threw a brick through a window and got a bottle of Marco Petri red wine and drank it, 
it did exactly what I anticipated it doing. It went down in there and tore the madness from me. It took me from over there and stood me right there and gave me that. And I got drunk and went to juvenile hall. And I spent the next three and a half years of my life in a running court battle with my mother, a lawyer, and a judge. Once a month, I went in front of a judge, and once a month, he sent me to the Whittier State Reform School, and once a month, my mother stood up and appealed it. Once a month, my mother come to visit me, and she said to me, I love you and I miss you. When you come home, things are going to be different. Now, for a long, long time, I didn't buy that, because I was getting to the point that I'm not going to get kicked around anymore. I'm not going to believe any of them people. I'm tired of them telling me things they ain't going to do. Somewhere during that three-and-a-half-year period of time, I switched over and started to believe my mother. And the reason I started to believe is because I wanted so desperately to believe that over there was the answer. See, if I could just believe that over there was the answer, it wouldn't require any effort on my part whatsoever to do anything. I would just have to show up and give my best rewards for being so magnificent. I didn't know that that was an alcoholic delusion until after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought everybody thought that way. And so at the end of three and a half years, I went in front of a judge one day, and he told my mother he's going to put me in a boy's home in the San Fernando Valley. And they transferred me to this boy's home. And when I got there, the superintendent told me if I was a good kid, I could go home on a home trip in 30 days. And God, I was good. 30 days came and went, and they loaded me on an old truck, and they brought me out of the valley. It was an all-day trip. I can remember like it was yesterday. They dropped us off in downtown Hollywood, and I had to run to catch the old subway car to ride downtown L.A. And I had to run a few blocks to catch an old streetcar that ran out to Willowbrook where I lived. And I got off the ground running to my mother's house, a mile and a half. It's all over now. No more difference. No more apart from. No more anger. No more hostilities. I'm going to be okay. It's just going to be okay now because everything is fine. I got to my mother's house. There was a drunken party going on there. Nothing changed except me. I'd spent three and a half years in juvenile hall. I'd heard a lot of strange things. I'd heard things like everybody's a liar and everybody's a cheat. Never believe anybody that used to tell me because that's a sign of weakness. Never show anybody to care for them that used to tell me because that's weakness. And more important than anything else, never reach your hand up out of the gutter because the minute you do that, they come along and kick you in the teeth. Now, I don't want to believe that because there was something way down deep inside of me that said, no, that's not true. But I walked out of my mother's house that day and made a vow to myself that I lived to be 500 years old. I'd never show anybody any human emotion again as long as I lived. I went on the street corner and got drunk. I come home next month and got drunk again. Long about that time in my life, I was a periodic. Well, I was forced to be a periodic. They only let me out once a month, so I only got drunk once a month. It was, it was always the same thing. I'd come home, throw a brick through a window, get a bottle of Marco Petri red wine, and drink it and get drunk and go back to school. And my first week in school was all right because I was a scholar. I read inspirational books. And my second week in school was all right because I was an athlete. I took strenuous exercise. My third week, the madness set in because I started to think. I started to think about showing up in a neighborhood. I started thinking about walking up to my gang. The gangs wanted me to be their leader. I don't want to be their leader. I keep saying to myself, I wonder what the gang would say if I was to tell them I didn't want to go out and hit people in the head. I wanted to go play baseball. I wonder what my gang would say if I was to tell them I didn't want to be a gangster. I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, an architect, or an engineer. I wonder what my gang would say. But you see, if you're like me and you're nothing, and you're glued over there against the corner of the wall, and you're trying to figure out what is that magic thing that frees you from there and stands you there and gives you that, you think about that. You think about it and think about it and think about it. And one day you, the dawn comes on you. It's a bottle of Marco Petri red wine. And so you think about that for a while. And the first thing you know, you're sitting on the street corner with a gallon of wine and you're trying to pour that relief in you. 
And I'm sitting there with a whole gallon of wine. I drink it, and I'm as sober as I am right now. I don't know what to do about that because my magic isn't magic anymore. And I'm sitting there, and the madness was all about me. The guy come along and tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you try these? And he gave me some pills. I found out that if I ate pills and drank wine, I could make the madness go away for a little while. Wasn't very much longer after that on the same street corner with a sack of pills and a gallon of wine. Nothing was working. A guy come along and tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you try this? And he gave me some morphine. I found if I put morphine in my arms and swallowed pills and drank wine, that I had a combination of things to change for the next 14 years of my life. It was never one, it was never two, it was a combination of the whole thing. I became too old to stay in that school, so I came out of my neighborhood to become a gangster. That was my ambition in life. I wanted to be the Irish Lucky Luciano of Willowbrook. <laughs> but I had a problem I didn't stand up too often. That's not conducive for being a gangster. You gotta look alert when you're out there doing them things. You know, you, you can't run and say, stick them up and puke on somebody. <laughs> But, you know, it, when you gather up around the tough guys and you're talking about being tough, you can't say I went out to rob Joe last night and puked on him. It just, it doesn't have the ring of machoism about it. You know what I mean? And, and when the tough guys in my neighborhood gathered up to talk, we talked about being tough. And the reason we talked about being tough is because if we didn't, they're going to find out how scared we were. Tough people talk about being tough so nobody will find out how frightened they are. The most violent people I've ever known in my life have been the most frightening people I've ever known in my life. Because you have to. You have to masquerade your fear with something. And I took all of my fear and I turned it into hostility and violence because I knew it was much easier for me to run up and smack somebody before they found out how scared I was. And that's the way I lived. And it didn't get better, it got worse. I kept getting arrested all the time. I wasn't having too much luck as a lone ranger out there. Because I just was too far. I wouldn't join the gang. And they were going to let me, the gangsters were going to let me do some gangstering with them because I had a reputation for being a tough kid. And we went out to do some gangstering one night, me and the gangsters, and I was going to be the lookout. They come out from doing their thing, and I was getting arrested for being asleep on the curb. <laughs> That blew my gangster career, I'll tell you that. You see, what I was before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it never was. It never was as something that's so frightening a feeling he doesn't try to do anything. He just sits around wherever he's at and says to himself, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to get up off this floor and step out there in that world and take my rightful place. Tomorrow I'm going to get out of this jailhouse, this penitentiary, this nuthouse. Tomorrow I'm going to step out there and I'm going to fulfill that potential. They've always told me I've had tomorrow. Tomorrow I woke up sick. Tomorrow I had to get well. And the only thing that broke up that cycle of madness is when I got arrested. I kept getting arrested over and over and over again. I even got arrested once and sentenced to the United States Army. My Army career was very brief because I didn't do much. And I came back out in my neighborhood and started to accumulate power. And I got all the things society says is powerful. Got a big apartment building, and I moved into the top floor. I got a closet full of $300 suits. I got a big automobile and parked it in the garage. And I had people coming to see me at all hours of the night at my beck and call and begging the big man. All the things that are powerful. 
The only thing was I was so powerful I couldn't leave the apartment because every time I did, the police jumped on me and took me to jail. Every once in a while I used to get brave. I'd get out in my blue suits and my big automobile and I'd drive around the street when people are coming home from work. And I've got nobody to impress about what a big man I am and I'm not too impressed with me anyhow about this side of my life. I'm driving alongside of people in a beat-up pickup truck. I look up at them and I say, I wonder why I'm not like that guy. I wonder what's the matter with me. Why am I different? Why can't I be like my brother? Why can't I just go to work and have a wife and a couple kids and come home like everybody else? I wonder what's the matter with me. And you see, I didn't know it at that particular time. I didn't know it for a long, long time. But I'm hanging on to the last thread of sanity that an insane person has. And it's the last thread between a guy like me and permanent and total insanity is my ability to blame somebody or something for my responsibilities, for my actions. I had to have something, and I had run out of people, places, things, circumstances, conditions. But I still had a kicker. God's fault. He don't like me. <laughs> Every once in a while I hear that now the Holy Anonymous, and it scares me to death. I guess if God wants me to have a job, he'll shoot it down here to the club. Deal, Charlie. I'll tell you how I feel about that. The next time you get hungry, go lock yourself up in a closet and pray for a hot dog. <laughs> if God squirts you one through the keyhole, call me. I've been looking for a deal like that all my life. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, they told me if I wanted a garden, I'd better get me a hoe. 1951, I'm on my way to the penitentiary for the first time, and I had something that knocked the, the pins clean out from underneath me. I, I'm standing in the old Los Angeles County Jail on my way to the penitentiary in 1951, and my mother's standing on the other side of the division screen screaming at me that I'm a murderer. It seems that my 17-year-old brother had gotten into some of my poison, taken an overdose of it, and died. I didn't know how to handle that very well. I handled it like I handled everything. I got angry at it, made it go away. I remember standing out underneath a tree handcuffed between two detectives three days later while they buried my baby brother. Now, I got all the guilt and shame and humiliation and degradation of a lifetime hanging around me, and I'm trying to cry, and I don't know how. That's what you're supposed to do. I didn't have the simple gift of tears that God gives every creature that's born on the face of this earth, and the reason I don't have them because I don't think they're necessary. I remember what I thought that day. I wondered about these things. I used to run things through my mind. I don't know how you were when you're active in sanity, but mine was this. I used to think about things. When I got up tight, I used to think about things, and I don't know how it was, I used to think about different things. And at this particular time, I'm thinking about God. I'm thinking about the concepts of God that was in my life. I'm thinking about my grandmother's God, the God who punished little boy who was bad, who'd been kicking me around ever since I could remember. And I've been trying to think about that punishing God. And then I'm thinking about the God that the preachers used to come to the jail and scream at us through the bars, about a forgiving, kind God, a loving, wonderful God. And I'm trying to figure out about a just God. And I'm trying to figure out what kind of a God was it that would let a thing like me live in this world, a thing that was useless, worthless, and no good, who destroyed everything he kept on this world. How come he took me and left me there and took this beautiful baby brother of mine and laid him down in that coffin and let him die? If there was a just God, if there was a just God in the world, it would be me in there and not him. He would be out here. Because I knew then, even way back then, that I was absolutely worthless in this thing called life. And I went on and spent the next four and a half years of my life in the penitentiary. And I came out of there four and a half years sicker than I was when I went in there. I tried to prove what a psychiatrist in San Quentin told me it wasn't true. He said, Johnny, people like you don't change. He took me down and showed me a little green room. He said, this way you go in that pot shot. And I told him, not me. I'm different. 
Fuck, I'm walking out of that institution bounty sermon. I had that deal beaten six months later. I'm laying in a nut house, kicking and screaming. That's when I made my bounce to some of the better laughing academies in the world, interviewing psychiatrists. I do that when I don't have anything better to do. I sit around with my wraparound overcoat on and we talk. They talk to me about my mother, and I talked to them about their mother, and they threw me out of the room. <laughs> and then they took me out and wired me for sound. That'll get your attention. What do you want to know now, doctor? And then I sit there after he introduced me to a state of childishness again, one more time, which I always was when I wasn't have something chemically in me. And I sit there and I waited for quote and unquote this great superior being to tell me an inferior person what was the matter with me? Why I had the hole in my gut? Why I was different? Why I didn't belong anywhere in the world? And no matter wherever I went, I was less than. What in God's world was the matter with me? And more importantly, what was I supposed to do about it? And you know what the good doctor said? Johnny, if you didn't drink these things and swallow these things, smoke these things and shoot these things, you wouldn't have any problems. As sick as I was, I knew that wasn't my problem as sick as I was. How do you explain to somebody who obviously doesn't know that your problem is you're nothing? You're absolutely nothing. You have never been anything. You ain't ever going to become anything. You're a nothing. Now you take a nothing and put something in it that makes him an almost. And the doctor's trying to tell me that what makes me from a nothing to an almost is a problem when I know down here where we all know that the problem is I'm nothing. And so when they told me that the elevator was the problem instead of what the problem was, I went on down that road of busted dreams and fantasies. 22 years ago this month, Somewhere around this month, I don't know, because I wasn't really at it too good at that time. They laid me down to bed in the Los Angeles County Jail. I weighed 128 pounds, and I was yellow, and I had my left arm and my right leg tied down. And a medical doctor stood at the foot of my bed and told me I was going to die before morning. I told him, okay. All day passed, and all night passed. He came back in my room, and the next morning he stood there and said the same thing to me. I said, okay. The third day came around, and he walked back into my room. I had a terror grip me I've never known before since. And the idea came to me that I was going to live and not die. I was going to have to get up out of that bed and go to the penitentiary and come back out and start that rat race all over again. And God knows I didn't want to do that. So I laid there for 18 days and 18 nights. I didn't eat, sleep, drink, or do anything. I just laid there. And one night, because I knew nothing better to do, I screamed out the only prayer that was said in my life. I said, oh, God, help me. And I thought for a long, long time nothing happened because there was no blinding flashes of light and nobody come running down the hall with a dozen donuts and we got an A meeting down there. And none of those things ever happened to me. What happened to me was I went to sleep for a little while. I've had 22 years to look back upon that experience. And I know exactly what happened to me. What happened to me 22 years ago was this, is that the thing died and I woke up. Because my life has been different from that day to this day. Now there's no drastic differences that I can really put it on. It seems like to me that the things that were important to me prior to that utterance of surrender, if that's what it was, if that's what it was, it seemed like the things that were important to me at that particular time are no longer, have never been important to me since then. 
I came through out of that thing. I'm standing in front of a Superior Court judge, being sentenced to 20 years in the penitentiary. Now, that doesn't mean anything to me. That's a game I played. You win some, you lose some. As I turned to walk out of the courtroom that day, the judge changed his conversation from me to a lady who was sitting in the courtroom, and what he said to her was the most damning piece of evidence anybody ever said about me in my life. He said to her, lady, if you care anything at all about the child you carry inside of you, you get so far away from this scum you'll never be allowed to lay eyes on her. She's a blood-sucking parasite in society doesn't have any right being around these decent people, then my power's never going to be. I'm walking out of the courtroom saying, he's not talking about me. He must be talking about my old man or my uncle or my grandfather or somebody. But he was talking about me. About me. He put in the words that day in that room full of people to hear what I spent a lifetime trying to masquerade from the world, what I really was in here. And as far as I can put that together, that's the ungrounded, unnamed fear of the alcoholic. The fear of discovery, what we really are in here, not what we play it up out there. I ran off and hid in solitary confinement for the next nine months of my life because I thought everybody knew now. And that's the way I was when I stumbled into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous 20 years ago last November. Now, I don't take any credit for coming to Alcoholics, nor do I take any credit for staying there from that day to this day. Because if I'd have known where I was coming 20 years ago, I wouldn't even have come. I wouldn't. I don't know why I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, but yes, I do know why I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. There's an utterance to a prayer that I made on the deathbed. I didn't know it at that time. The vehicle that brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous was the institution that I was in allowed women to come in there. I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous a little over 20 years ago to smell perfume. Around there ever since. <laughs> You've got to be careful what gets them in the door. And then, I, I don't know of anybody that comes to Alcoholics Anonymous knowing they're an alcoholic. They may have drinking problems, but that don't necessarily make them an alcoholic. Something you have to discover here. And that comes through sheer desperation. Something you have to discover here. And that comes through sheer desperation. Call surrender. In other circles of life, it's called salvation. It's called many things. Call many things. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we call it, we call it surrender. But it's all synonymous. It's turning your will and your life over to care of something you don't even believe in. I remember my first impression of Alcoholics Anonymous. I pray God I never forget that. Because it's been written by somebody who was far wiser than I, that if you forget, you are condemned to relive it. And I don't ever want to forget my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I sit in the back row and what I lovingly like to call my throne of contempt. Had my coat collar up and my shades on for about two. If I'd have been any cooler when I got here, I'd have froze to death, as I'd say. <laughs> I looked up on the backboard, I saw two big gates, and I thought to myself, my God, I've wandered into an anti-aircraft brigade. I said to this clown sitting next to me, what is that? He said, it's alcoholic anonymous. I sunk down in my seat. Gangsters weren't supposed to be hanging out with them winos. If it had been gangsters anonymous or overhip anonymous or weirdos anonymous, I'd have been up there waving at him, but I didn't want to be an alcoholic because I didn't know what one was, but I didn't want to be one. That's how sick I was. So I sit down and wait for the women to get up and tell their racy stories. And so they got up and seen me curve because they had sort of a twinkle in their eye and a smile on their face. And they needed this thing that I didn't understand. By the way, they learned it to talk about God. When I came in, you talked to me about God. I got run out of the room because God was the reason I was. But I kept coming back to your meetings because they'd seen you. And seeing you had seen the miracle. No, I didn't know that. 
I had no way of knowing that. You see, to me, you are the evidence of the miracle. Without you, there would be no evidence that a miracle transpires within the confines of alcoholics not. There would just be nothing. There'd be no evidence of a miracle. So when I look at you, the evidence of the miracle of alcoholics anonymous by the grace of God is before me. And I didn't know that. So I kept coming back to me, he kept talking about God. And I kept leaving. One Sunday I got up, and don't ask me what Sunday it was, because I don't know. It's the day I'd lived my entire lifetime for. It's the day that every rotten, filthy, corruptible thing I'd ever done in my life had led me right up to the very gates of hell. I didn't know I was going to sit in the room that morning and somebody was going to put the key in and let me out of there. I didn't know that. Because if I'd have known it, I wouldn't have come to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I wasn't conditioned to go to drunks for answers. I was conditioned to go to doctors and lawyers and preachers and teachers and them and those and this and that. I was not conditioned to go to drunk branches. So if I'd have known that that was my day, I wouldn't have come here. But I didn't know it was my day, so I came here. And I said where I always sit, with the same air of contempt that I always had. And a little guy that I knew did 23 fat years in the penitentiary, stood at the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous that Sunday morning a long time ago and told me something I've never forgotten. It makes more sense to me than anything, and I know it'll make more sense to me tomorrow than anything you'll learn. He said to me, you just don't have to live that way no more if you don't want to. He said, you don't have to do it like this no more. Nobody ever told me that. People have been telling me all my life, don't drink, swallow, smoke, and shoot. But they've never told me how to live without doing it. After the meeting, I went up to him. I said, how do you learn how to live? He looked at me and he smiled. He said, Johnny, there's a book called Alcoholics Anonymous in the library. If you go get it, I'll go home and pray if you find some part of you in it. Now, I guess that little fella's crazy real hard. Because I've been a student of the book Alcoholics Anonymous from that day to this day. And the only thing I've ever found in that book is me. I haven't looked for anything else. I'm not looking for a way to sober up the world. I'm not looking for a way to cure all society's ills either. What I'm looking for is a way to live peacefully and comfortably and joyously with me and the loving God that made me. Now I'm going to tell you about the strange phenomena that takes place in my life. It seems like to me that the closer I adhere to the principles that are written in the book of all knowledge, and the more willing I become to share that knowledge in this fellowship, just for the sheer joy of doing it, the more peaceful and the more comfortable and the more joyous I live with me and the loving God that made me. It was freely given, so freely I gave it away. Now I'd like to tell you that I've been wonderful from that day or so. I could tell you I put the plug in my jug and the seed in the seed, and I got an escalator to happiness, and I rode off into the sunset. It's been wonderful from that day to this time. You know anybody like that? If you do, there's one of two things wrong with them. Three and nutty and hell are they're taking something. <laughs> they don't live where I live out there with them. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, I'm no more part of them today than I was 25 years ago. No more. Thank God I know that. The book Alcoholics Anonymous puts it much more simpler than that. It says the idea of the delusion that I'm a, I am like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. 
I don't know why I should stop to think now that I'm ever going to sit somewhere I've never sit. This is on first day too. I, I didn't sit here when I first came. I was different. I know none of you were, but I was. I was different. I wasn't like you. You weren't like me. I was conditioned to identify with the differences, not to recognize the similarities. So I used to sit in meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous, and they'd say, you got to get after him. I'd got to run around like a chick with my head cut off. Pick up ashtrays and pour coffee and smile. Wonderful, eh? Wonderful. Happy, happy. I went back and sat in the corner and died. I'd do what they told me. I read the book. Nothing happened. I threw it across the room. One day I went over and picked up the most simple little book and saw the most simple statement I've ever seen in my life. Said how it works. <laughs> Once you know, I almost missed that. I guess I was looking for the good fairy. You know him, don't you? He's the one who blesses all them people. All you got to do is put the plug in the jug and you feed your feet, kid. You'll be fine. That guy you just didn't go talk to, you should go sit in his chair. I knew that's where he was coming next. But I was doing everything they told me to do and nothing happened. Right behind that statement, how it works in the book Alcoholics Anonymous in Chapter 5, I discovered who makes our program and who doesn't. I found this out through trial and error. I heard it read in a meeting about Alcoholics Anonymous one night when I was troubled not very long ago because some people that I loved very much were coming up drunk. They were coming up drunk, and I didn't understand that. And I heard all excuses, and they didn't seem to register. All excuses on why people drink never registered with me. They, you know, the idea of getting materially minded, or getting wrapped up with Mary, or Mary getting wrapped up with John, or John getting wrapped up with Susie, or all those things never registered. I'm sitting in a meeting about Alcoholics Anonymous one night, and it said this in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Period. Isn't that amazing? No great mystery about that anymore. Now I know. Now I know. Read every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I go to at home. I found it necessary to fulfill the conditions of the program of recovery called Alcoholics Anonymous while confined in an institution. I didn't do that because I wanted to, I did it because I had to. It was just as natural as breathing in and out. It just came, I did it. I sat down one day and took a tablet and a pencil, wrote about things I didn't know what I was writing about, and it felt like I had a jackhammer in there knocking that stuff down. And I spent three and a half hours with a man telling me about every rotten, filthy, corrupt thing I'd ever done in my life, and in that three and a half hours, I went out and sat underneath a tree, and it felt like the bondage of madness had been released from me, and I haven't had returned from that day to this day. That wasn't the real miracle, though. The real miracle was that the following evening, I went over and I sat down in a meeting about the Holy Anonymous, and by some strange magic thing, I was no longer apart from, I had become a part of the Holy it was the most magic thing, and I, it's been my great pleasure from that day to this day to be in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings all over the North American continent. And if I didn't know where I was half the time, I wouldn't know where I was. Because I always feel like I'm part of it. I didn't understand that. A few years ago, I was in Honolulu, and I was in, at a meeting, and a guy got up there six foot eight, about 4,000 pounds, and he lying down. He looked down at them people, and you know, he really looked mean. He said, now, just because you come sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
Doesn't make you a member of Alcoholics Anonymous anymore than going sitting in a chicken coop and make you a chicken. <laughs> I wasn't a part of as long as I uh, was apart from. And I was apart from as long as I realized that I didn't have to do nothing in AA. All I had to do was just show up. And I was waiting for the Immaculate Conception or something. I don't know what I was waiting for. Don't work that way. I had a kick out of this one. The theme of the conference, happiness is a decision. The book Alcoholics Anonymous is happiness is a byproduct of right living. And I don't even have that right to make that decision because I, I have no, I can't even make decisions today. I'm tough on decisions. I have a tough time making decisions. I don't know which way to go half the time. So a lot of times I just have to sit down and don't do nothing. I came out of that penitentiary. I can tell you a little story because I don't tell you my wife is going to get after me. It's one of her stories because when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a, my vocabulary wasn't too good. Well, it consisted of about four four-letter words. Mother ran all around in there. It was kind of like the catalyst that created every conversation. That was, you know, it was kind of like the key word that you hypnotize, mother. <laughs> well, that's what I did. And uh, one day I'm uh, cutting a little dentist hair in the institution. And, and, and the doctor said to me, hey, Johnny, did you ever get out of here? What are you going to do? And I ran my garbage tip on him. He said, oh, he said, you'll never make it. I said, why not? He said, the minute you open your mouth, they're going to know where you come from. I said, what's the matter with my mouth? He said, nothing. You just open it every now and then. And you see, I don't know where it came, but I came from inside of me somewhere, and I guess it was a result of trying to practice the principles of this program called Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard myself saying a strange thing. What am I supposed to do about it? I've always talked this way, Doctor. He said, if you're serious, come and sit with my friends and I. So on Tuesday nights, for a lot of nights, a lot of Tuesday nights, for a long time, I sit with my little dentist friend and two of his little friends from town, and they word by word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, said me the English language. And they installed in me a kind of love that I uh, very rarely have ever experienced in my life. And they loved me enough to correct me, not corrupt me. They didn't think I was cute and funny when I said off-color four-letter words. They stood my wrath as I got angry with them when they corrected me. They loved me. But I said something, they said, we don't say it this way, Johnny, we say it this way. And then they got, and I got mad at them and threw things at them and screamed and cussed them. And they just sat there and waited until I was all through and we started over and over and over again. And one night the dentist said to me, Johnny, tonight you get to give the talk. And I said, well, what am I going to say? He said, talk about that program you love called Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, okay. So that night, in front of my little three friends, I told them what I was like and what happened to me, what I was trying to be like that day, and they gave me a little statue about that high. Oh, I love that little statue. That's the only thing I'd ever got in my life I hadn't stolen. But, but even more important, that was my semblance of excellence. It was my thing that said, look how wonderful I am. It was my thing. I wandered around with it for a solid week. I put my little statue up there. I said good morning to it. I said good night to it. I stayed with them wherever I went. Somebody said, how are you? I showed up my statue. <laughs> Just let them know I was wonderful. Because, you see, I did that because I didn't feel I was wonderful. I only had things to show how wonderful I was, so I held my statue up. God's very kind to me. So the following Tuesday night, I went over and sat down with my three little friends, and the guy that owned the restaurant in town got up and gave a little talk, and they gave him my statue. <laughs> Ooh, I hated him. 
I laid awake all night for a week trying to figure out how I was going to break out of an institution, run 20 miles to town, break into his restaurant, steal my statue, and get back before they missed me. You know what I've learned from that? I've learned that anything that you can hold in the palm of your hand to touch you to see has no value in God's eyes. That's a real storehouse and treasure chest in my father's place. All the things of spirit we call peace, happiness, tranquility, joy, love, lack of fear. That sits in my father's treasure chest. I came out of penitentiary almost 19 years ago. My mother fell off the Dutch blind drunk. I picked her up and put her on a couch and said, Mom, I'm going to an AA meeting. She said, Fine, I think you should. <laughs> it took my mother a long time to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm very proud tonight to tell you when she's sober, she goes to meetings. <laughs> now, she don't stay sober all the time, but that's all right, too. So I've learned a great lesson from my mother. I learned I don't have the power to get anybody sober. I don't have the power to get them drunk either. I even don't have any power to keep me sober. I'm powerless. I'm as powerless today as I was 25 years ago. I don't have any power. Book Alcoholics Anonymous tells me what I have is a daily reprieve, and that's only contingent upon my maintenance of certain spiritual conditions. Daily reprieve. That only means to me if I live my life in such a manner today, I'm going to be given a power that would sustain me today. Today, period. This is all I got. Now, I don't really understand or know what spiritual principles mean to everybody else. I like to explain to you what they mean to me. They mean to me that I can't do anything you can't see. It's like, it's like being able to give your pet parrot to the town gossip and not worry. Now, I'd like to stand here and tell you that I live that way. Not possible. Some days? Yes. Some periods? Yes. Constantly? No. There's only been one perfect man. And they hung him on a cross because he frightened everybody to death because he was so good. No, he's a symbol of what, what life could be by living perfectly spiritual all your life. My wife has got a great line, and I want to feel it because we have occasion to work with a lot of newcomers in our area. You know how newcomers are, they're always worse than everybody else. You work with a newcomer, he's always done more than you have. My wife's got a great line when they say that. She said, I want to tell you something, honey. <laughs> There's only seven deadly sins. You can't have eight. <laughs> And I guess somewhere today, somewhere today, I don't know. No, not today, I don't think. Today's been a good day. But somewhere during the last 24-hour period of my life, I've either thought about them or done them. The seven deadly sins. I've indulged in them. Either mentally or physically. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't say much. But see, here's the difference. They're not my constant companions. Lust, greed, gladdenry. Those things are not my constant companions anymore. I used to, I lived with it for 27 years of my life. They almost drove me literally insane. 
And what they are are the, are the tormentors and the bonds that keep a selfish person like me in complete bondage. And that's where I was all my life. Before you, just complete bondage. I guess the six year of my sobriety is the worst year I've ever lived in my life. I didn't understand what was going on, yet I do understand what was going on. I'd like to share it with you for an instant. Somewhere during the sixth year of my life, uh, sixth year of my sobriety, and that's the only life I've ever known in Alcoholics Anonymous, it became more important for me to be out there than it was to be here. It became more important for me to be something out there than nothing here. And so in the sixth year of my sobriety, I'm going along when everything's going well. I've got everything that they say is fine. One day and the next day, I'm living in a $60 a month rented room in East Long Beach. My wife had just committed suicide. My kids had moved into some place they didn't want to be because they couldn't afford for all of us. I didn't know what was going on. And I'm going to meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm sitting there and I'm full of anger and bitterness and questions and doubt. And I'm wondering what's going on. And I hear the stories from Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, I'm picking up on the differences and trying not to remember the similarities. I'm hearing these stories. I came here 90 days ago. My wife came back and my job is going well and my business is flourishing, my car. And I said, my God, when am I going to get mine? You know how sick that is? I'm sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous expecting to be rewarded for receiving a gift. My gift is sobriety. When I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I ran around with an old lady by the name of Myrtle Snyder. And she's probably more responsible for me being alive today and the things that I know because of her unconditional love in my life and anything that I know of. And she used to tell me things because she used to ask her questions. I'd say, what is this thing called sobriety? And she says, uh, it's a gift from God. I said, well, and being the type of person I am, I always ask things. I say, well, if God gave me a sobriety, what do I give him back? He says, remember this, honey. What you do with your gift is your gift to God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I'd like to tell you a story about today about my life today because it'll tell you the whole story. If there's anything in God's world I'd love to do more than go to meetings and be with you is play golf. And a few years ago, a company I belonged to gave me a membership in a country club. And I'm out there playing golf one Wednesday with a bunch of doctors. And I got a short sleeve shirt on and on my arms are things like daggers through skulls with blood dripping from them. And, Panthers with their sides shot out, and oh, it's a real status symbol at the club, let me tell you. And then I'm walking down the fairway, and I'm playing golf, and the doctor said to me, he said, gee, Johnny, you sure have big forearms, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, you ever play baseball? I said, sure, I used to play ball every time I went to jail. He went, oh, you've never been in jail. I didn't tell him any difference because that ain't my deal either. I, you know, that's just not the I'm bad. I used to be bad, now I'm wonderful. <laughs> you're always you're bad because you've always been wonderful. That ain't my deal. I don't know why, and I'm kind of glad that it isn't my deal because 
in the three or four years that I've been out there, I play golf with this little doctor about once a week, and I've learned to love him. And he's told me a story over coffee and sandwiches and breakfast and walking down the fairways. His story is this. He was an orphan in the Bronx in New York. He was in an orphanage, and he worked his way out of that orphanage and worked and put himself through school. And he worked and sacrificed and put himself through college, and then he worked and sacrificed and put himself through medical school, and then he worked and studied and sacrificed and became a doctor, and he worked and studied and sacrificed and bought him a house and joined the country club, and that's his deal. How do I tell him? I spent my entire lifetime running up and down the streets, in and out of penitentiaries and nut houses, shooting dope, using and abusing and working over people, and I got sober and ended up in the same place he did. <laughs> you know what he would say? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It ain't possible. You can't get from there to here. You've got to work, study, sacrifice, do without, and do it, and do it, and then. Uh-uh. My life is a gift. Everything in my life is a gift. I didn't ask for this gift, I was given this gift. I treasure my gift. My sobriety above all things under God's greenness. The gift of my sobriety has given me the ability to love unconditionally. And as far as I can comprehend that, the only place in the world I've ever found unconditional love is alcoholics non. There's no conditions here. I've learned that because I've accepted this gift. So I treasure my gift, my gift of sobriety above all things. I love my wife and I love my children and I love my grandson. But I love this program and the treasures and the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous in you. If what I do with my gift, if what I do with my gift to my God, is my gift back to my loving Father God. If what I do with it, if I send it back to him untarnished, if what I do with my gift to my God is my gift to my God, I would only pray one thing this evening as I stand before you. I would only pray that my Father God would be as pleased with my gift to him as I have been with his gift to me. Thank you. Thank you.